Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Sugar Moriarty. Dagan, <laughs> thank you for joining me today. How are you, my friend? Call it. Should call it. Call it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We were just freak. talking about before we went on, before we went live, I, I was wondering to, to Colin, which I do from time to time. I said, did I wear this T-shirt the last time, the very last time we, we recorded? And he said, I don't think so. And then he went in and investigated for me and everything like that. But I thought of a solution to this, Colin, the interim minutes here. What we could do is to avoid that problem ever rearing its ugly head. Just go topless every other podcast. Sure. There then you go. you could never repeat a t-shirt. Show those breasts. <laughs> those breastesses. Those, those breasts. hairy nips. <laughs> then knee knops. <laughs> well, that's fine. We can do you, that if dude. you want. I don't know if that's allowed on. I think, like, I don't think nipples are allowed on Twitch, but I think they're allowed on YouTube. Oh, is Not, that like, right? Female nipples. Something, something's weird because I... Yeah, something's weird with that. I don't know. Something's... Well, weird. if you say no nips on Twitch then you got to make it apply to everybody, right? You got to make it apply to male, female, every other thing in between. He, she, they, the whole thing. But yeah, so yeah. And you know, we don't have, uh, what's that? What's that social media, like sort of Patreon for like sexy Twitch? Oh, OnlyFans. OnlyFans, OnlyFans. Yeah. I don't think we have to worry about OnlyFans. No, 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 no. I don't think so either. (laughs) Well, my friend, it's uh, it's good to be here with you today. Our topic is uh, No Country for Old Men, yes. which is a fan voted topic over on Patreon, the film. Like However, the film, since I'm a Cormac McCarthy fan, although I've not read many of his books, The Road is like my favorite book mm. ever. And uh, I don't know why I've not read more of his. But when I saw this come up, I, I went ahead and I bought the book and I read it. And um, I just spent three different sessions in the pool. It probably took like four hours. It's not a very long book. Wow, and that's impressive. Still, you read fast. Yeah, but you have to really remember, like I'm, I'm holding enough for people that they can see it. It's not very no, dense. it's not too intimidating. And you, know, and you know how Cormac McCarthy does his dialogue for pages sometimes? I'm yes. trying to find an example. And he doesn't use quote quotes. Right. Usually. Where like it comes like this is a page, you know, so yes. you can really flip through pretty quick. It but, moves. It moves. And I read story. I read the road in one sitting. Like I famously said, I read it overnight. <laughs> it was so good. And the road, I think, is bigger than this. <laughs> that speaks to Colin so much. So this book was uh, I was glad to do it because I was just like, you know, I don't I don't actually even know what the movie's about. I mean, that was how kind of ignorant I was about it. I'm like, I'm not really sure what the fuck it's about. The, the, the title doesn't say anything about about it. I don't know how I've gotten so far without really understanding it. So I was like, I'm just going to read it and not look at anything else. And so I did that. And then I watched the film and uh, we'll get to that. But um, Dig, I, I want to begin, as we always do, with, uh, you know, if you have anything you want to get off your chest, off those nips, <laughs> off those hairy nips. Yeah, if you got anything to get off them nips, let me know now. Well, you know what I thought you might find funny? And I brought this up on the, on the last show that I would discuss this for our opening. And it kind of just kind of hit me over the head like a sledgehammer. One of those things that happens, and it'll give you guys a little bit of a Dagan origin story, maybe. 
So this kind of running joke that I'm not really sure if I could refer to as a joke with Helene and I is this thing that dates back our whole relationship. Now, we just celebrated our 20 year anniversary, as you know, Kyle. So we've been married for 20 years. We've been Happy together for 20. Yeah. Thank you so much. Been together for 26, 27 years because we were together six, seven years prior to getting married. And then we were friends before we even got together. So we, we let's just say thir- the better part of 30 years. Right. And I'm for, a 48 year old man. So I've known Helene for a long time. And she has this thing, this sort of running gag or nag or playful thing that she says that from time to time over decades now where she's like, our life would have never arrived at this point, whatever said point would be at that moment in time, if I didn't initiate it, if I didn't plan it, meaning her, meaning so she'll say things like we would never be married, we would have never got engaged we would have never owned a home, our second home, have a child, a second child, all this kind of stuff. If I wasn't the initiator, if I wasn't the catalyst and everything like that. And now I like to think every relationship has the the planner. That just makes me feel better because maybe a relationship with two planners. I just can't speak to that. Now, Helene really is the planner. She really gets excited about things. She gets the ball in motion. She gets the gears turning. She loves to do research. She loves to just sort of plan out things. And I'm really not that way. I think I'm a little more laid back when it comes to that. See, lazy when it comes to that. I'll I'll Mm. totally take responsibility for that. But... She's made the joke before and we kind of laugh it off and then I never really gave it much thought. And then I really started to think about it and I was like, holy shit. It's pretty crazy to think that that is probably true. And the only thing it really left me with this one thought, right, which is the only thing I've really had jurisdiction over pure 100 percent jurisdiction over is my career. And now I'm speaking about my career in animation. Of course, the podcast came along four or five years ago and all that kind of thing. But I'm talking about my work, salary, career, what I do for a living. That's the really only thing I've had pure jurisdiction over. And everything else in my life, especially since we've been married, but really larger than that since we've been together, has been largely of Helene's doing. And I feel it is funny to talk about. And I'm sure... Listen, I don't mean to stereotype relationships, men and women, but I'm sure a lot of guys out there listening to me in relationships can speak to this too, right? But I never really was cognizant of it beyond it being this running gag joke in our relationship. And so I took it upon myself to plan our vacation to celebrate our 20-year anniversary, which I was telling you about yesterday. We're going to mm-hmm. go out to Cape Cod, which I've never been there. We'll see Martha's Vineyard. We'll go to Nantucket. We'll we'll go. Th- what is you know? I once going. knew a man from Nantucket. <laughs> was his bleep so long he could suck <laughs> it? I think that's. I had a goes. shirt in college, very early two thousand cert, that just said, "I am that man from Nantucket." <laughs> I don't fit in it anymore or I would wear it. That's the best t-shirt I've ever heard of. (laughs) And I I know Mm t-shirts. So so that was my big thing. And it wasn't... Now, here's the funny bit. She was the catalyst for me doing that. She basically told me in not so many words, really in so many words, 
that this is on you. You're planning this trip. It's got to be something that's completely of your doing, your research. She's not talking about monetary things, but she's just saying this has to be your grunt work. You have to kind of put in the time and effort to do this thing. And I really felt like might be the marriage might be on tinterhooks if I don't do yeah. this. So yeah, I took yeah. it very sure. I took it very seriously. And she was kind of constantly reminding me because I think she knows me, you know, that in the past she would have just taken the taken the reins. But uh, so that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with it now, where it's like, yeah, you got to you got to got to grow up in this way. Like you got to kind of take the reins and you got to take the wheel on some of these things. And she says the same things about with the kids, like getting them registered for dance for the year, getting them registered for basketball camp, whatever it is. Like she really does do a shitload. So shout out to Helene. And I'm going to let you guys know how it goes on a running basis with me kind of taking over some of the household responsibilities because man i've i've spent the better parts of two decades not really doing shit <laughs> basically which is pretty crazy to think about yeah i mean it's uh, it's uh, you're kind of overstating the fact though i mean you you are a a breadwinner a hard worker yes good dad true and fastidious which i don't think you give yourself enough credit for you know like with taking care of the house and all the rest because thank you my friend I, I get you in the sense that i'm very I know when to take advantage of opportunities and when to strike, I think, professionally in a lot of ways. And, and, and I've always been good at just taking advantage of those opportunities. But personal yeah. opportunities, I'm just like, man, you know, and so I've been quite lazy about those things as well. In um, we already talked about it on Sacred Symbols, but in asking Micah to marry me, I planned a, 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 you know, an evening out. Sure. In Richmond at a really nice hotel and nice restaurant and all that kind of stuff. And that was like, you know, that was to me to my very limits probably yeah. of, <laughs> of organizational. Oh, geez. Of organizational prowess. The camera keeps falling on me over and over again on my shows. I got to figure this out. Oh, yeah. But because, uh, yeah, it's like, let me see here. Can I put a little like card behind it? I think you that know, might like do a, the trick. I'm not very it? smart. I don't know how many people I, times I have to tell people that I'm just like, people are like, Colin, you're one of the things people think is like, oh, Colin, you're so you're intelligent on this that, and the other thing. And I'm like, not really, because <laughs> I can't get this camera to even stand up. But uh, in my domestic life, I, I must say that Micah and I have just a division of labor. Like it just kind of fell that way. Very traditional. I'm pretty traditional. Like I wouldn't mind. I, I, I kind of want to have a traditional life. Like I wouldn't mind if she didn't work. I wouldn't mind that kind sure. of thing. Sure. And it works. That formula works for you guys. Yeah. Like I'm the kind of the breadwinner in quotes. She has a job. She works with us. But, you know, it's it's um, I pay the bills and do all that kind of stuff. And I take care of the outside of the house, like the pool, the lawn, the gardens and all okay. that. And then she takes care of everything inside. She that's does the clean. shopping. She cooks. That's you know, fa- like, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I do the food shopping. So that is one. Yeah. You got to kind of make it work for for you. And if it's not working, you kind of you make adjustments, right? You kind of evolve it. So everybody's happy. You got to kind of check in with each other. But uh, will we reach that third decade mile marker? <laughs> we'll see. Some, I mean, maybe with some adaptation. It sounds sure. like you might. I mean, it sounds like you might. I think, I think, I think, I think we'll we're be okay. all right. What yeah. are you? Uh, what are they? What are your children going to do? Are they? They're kind of old enough to watch themselves, right? What yeah. Well, that's a big thing. We just talked about. We went out for dinner for our anniversary last weekend, a little late, and we were talking about that. It's like so nice now. Lily is fifteen, going on sixteen. Graydon will be twelve in a month. 
So they're old enough to stay home. So it's like we could run out to the restaurant for three or four hours, go do this, that, see a movie. We don't have to really be that concerned. You know, we're not going to leave them overnight. You know, who God no, knows well, some risky business. Well, that's what, but that was what I was asking was that when you go to Cape Cod, where are they going to stay by themselves? Oh, no, they'll stay with Helene's parents. Oh, because I was going to say, I think be. they're, they're kind of old enough. I mean, dad used to 15. Dad was going upstate to see his weird girlfriends. You know, and I would. <laughs> yeah, you I know, what? that's a good point. You were you were staying home overnight for days at a time. Oh, yeah. I was just left alone for at mom's, too. I mean, I was alone all the time, too. You know, but I was age. I was watching myself. That's why I think it's so funny about how our sisters especially are very careful and very motherly and stuff, which is cool. Our mom was motherly. But sure, I was, sure. you have to understand the day that I started fourth grade, I started watching myself from the morning before I went to school until probably like seven at night. Yeah, you, know? you were latchkeying it up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I sure. didn't really even I don't really think that that's a big deal, to be honest with you. It's not like I'm like, oh, where was my mom to cook me food? I would just I would literally do whatever I wanted. I would I would come home from school. I'd go to Cumberland Farms. I'd steal money from her boyfriend, you know, his from his change jar and go and buy fucking donuts and shit. I was going to so, ask about this. You you weren't you're not mobile at that age. So no, you no, have no to but I was riding my food, bike around and all that food. Right. Right. It, yeah. You know, watching TV, playing games like it was. So to me, it's so funny when I ask. Because sometimes in my mind, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe Mike and I will go on a vacation and maybe Declan can watch our house or whatever. And he's going to be in 11th grade, I think. Yes. And to me, I'm like, of course. And Dana, I think Dana's like, no, no. I'm like, dude, I was like 13, 14, 15 years old, just alone from like Thursday night until Monday, basically. Yeah, see, sometimes. That, was, that was the 90s and early aughts, right? Yeah, wasn't it wasn't that long ago. But, but the point is, is that I don't think that that was like wrong. It's like yeah. my dad was like, you're a fucking... 15 years old like <laughs> i'm here's 40 dollars if you want to order some food i stocked everything up your dumb stoner friends are across the street i'll see you in a few days you know and yeah. it never nothing ever came of it i mean yeah. the only i'd have to kind of like i always said i always had to kind of plan around when dad would come home got to get the heat on a certain thing <laughs> got to make sure that i'm not blaring out <laughs> blasting out and ruining his beautiful speakers get everything back on an even keel like I say, like him, him turning the, the, the corner from South Country Road onto Woodland <laughs> and me just running into the house to try to lower the music before he gets home. And hopefully he doesn't see me and it would always be like, I, I saw you running into the house. What did you do? <laughs> so great, dude. See, now the difference between you being solo, my kids are as thick as thieves right now. We're very fortunate in that regard. Boy, girl, three and a half years apart. But there's really no sibling rivalry there. They have a really good relationship. And I think mischief could get could kind of get into the equation there. Mm. There could be mischief afoot if we leave these two alone together because they'll get up to no good, I think, because they're kindred spirits. You know, the, they kind of think each other are hilarious and which is great. It's very it makes for a very pleasant household. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want that risky than, business than you and Dana, on perhaps. the house. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost. Well, Dana and I were closer in age. We were a year and a half apart. We still are a year and a half apart. I think that three and a half, that very strategic three and a half years is is big because and isn't that funny? It's just add a year or two into the equation and the dynamic is completely different. Not and always, but Lily, in this case, Lilia doesn't chase Graydon with a butcher knife. <laughs> Did Dana ever do that? <laughs> Cleaver, butcher knife. And she was fast. She ran track. I was running for my life. That was... Talk about serial killers, dude. We got to do the growing up Moriarty one day. Oh I think she's, she's kind of the... the 
the problem with getting that done. I think I think she's like more Dana's like the more reserved one of, of all of us now. Definitely. I think in some way. But she's, she's also worried. I've said this before. I've gone on record and I'll, I'll say this till the day I die. She is the funniest and she will have the audience in stitches. You know, she's very dry. She's witty. She's extremely sarcastic. And, you know, she's a good storyteller, too. And she enjoys those strolls down memory lane. I think she would have fun. It's just getting the getting her to the mic, sit down with the headphones on that first five minutes, like dragging the mule with digging their heels in. But once she's on, I think she will have a good time. It's just getting her into that seat. Yeah, she's the one that's probably had the least to drink and done the fewest drugs. So she also <laughs> probably has the, the the best memory out of the four of us. <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe so, that's what it is. She, and she's smart. I mean, she's so yeah. smart. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'd like to I'd like to make that happen. Like I said, I think we should just come to Richmond when you're all here and we just go to a studio and just record it, you know, like so pay someone fun. to have it have it done so we don't have to worry about any of it. And we just come in and talk about it. I think it'll be hysterical. I think uh, what she's worried about is I, I don't know if it's like getting in trouble. I don't think that's what what it is. But I think she's like worried her students will find out and think less of her or something that's like that. And I'm touchy. Like, I think that's a touchy. That thing. is touchy. But I'm like, isn't the opposite probably true? In, in some way, like you do a pretty popular knockback. It's not like the biggest podcast in the world, but it's it's bigger than ninety nine point nine percent of podcasts in the world. Um, and that would be kind of cool to be on it. Right. I mean, that kind of gives you a little credibility. See, yeah, she does. a. I got I get a little salt insulted with Dana because she does a podcast like a, a section of her one of her classes every year where they like do their own podcast and I think listen to podcasts and study them or whatever. And I'm like, yes. Your brother is a famous podcaster <laughs> who made his entire career on podcasting. Do you want me to help you in any way? And I think part of the reason she doesn't is because she doesn't reputationally that could hurt her. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. She doesn't want to blend those out. two worlds. There's wisdom in that sometimes, but I think th- I I think this is completely not a concern for for doing this show with the four sibs. I don't think that would be. I agree no, I don't you. think so either. I mean, but I it's. It's what she thinks. It's like, oh, so these guys turn on, you know, a podcast to see what it's all about. And it's there's my brothers talking about showing their breasts on YouTube. <laughs> so I get it. Harry nips. And if only if not for the illegality on Twitch, would Colin be shirtless all the time? I remember I actually do remember, you know, that we used to use lapel mics at IGN and lapel mics are kind of funny. OK. And uh, we don't use them here. And I used to sometimes take my shirt off and hang on at kind of funny and hang the lapel mic on my chest hair, which I thought was pretty funny. So that would be fun to do that. That is <laughs> There's pictures out there of that for sure. Bring that back. That's what I say. That's my vote. My good friend. My good friend, my brother. By the way, Dave, let me ask you just in real time right now. Please. You're going to be my best man, right? At, oh, at my, at my, my gosh. I'm honored. I, yeah. I've, I was yours. You know? There's a lot of talk in my household about this wedding. People Is that want, right? Yeah, people want. We we joked with you guys about the destination wedding and stuff, yeah. but Lily and Helena do it are both like, so "Is it going to be fancy and formal and nice? Or like, are we going to be able to, like, re- and I, you know, are they going to have a wedding?" And I'm like, "Uncle Kyle's going to have a wedding. It's they they just got. First of all, big congrats. I haven't said that Thank on you. air. Thank you. Huge congrats. We're so happy and proud of you guys. But you know, I said they just got. It, it, they just made it official." A week ago give the give them a little time you know i get i get the whens the wheres i'm like just ride it out we got to ride it out sometimes you got to plan these things yeah well no time. we do i mean I, I think we're looking at fall 2023 
I thought we like because mm. in my mind, I'm so this is what I'm saying. I'm fucking stupid. So <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, why can't we just get married right away? Like, I don't understand. I, in my mind, I always thought people were like, no, we got to prepare and get make every time. But I'm like, what's the point? We have a small group of people that are coming. I think it's right. gonna be like 50 people. OK. And so, like, I'm inviting core family members, my siblings, their kids. Yeah. You know, a couple right. of aunts, a couple of uncles. Right. And then a small selection of friends. OK. And we're not having wedding parties. We're just having, I'm just having a best man, you, she's just having a maid of honor. Oh, that's interesting to know. Okay, well, I'm honored. Yeah, which I feel a little bad about because I've been in three different people's weddings outside of you and I cannot reciprocate on that, but it's just, it's just not the way it's going to be. Yeah, that's um, okay. You can't feel that way. Can't, right, right. You can't always do uh, that. They're invited, of course, but so we're going to do all that. But then I, so I was like, yeah, let's just get married. Let's like, what, I know we have to re- reserve a place, but it's like, let's just get this over with. I mean, what, and I don't, I don't think I realized in my neanderthal brain that <laughs> the reason that it takes so long to get married is because you have to wait like to find a venue to get the dress to do the, this to find the catering i had no idea i mean i don't know why i thought yeah let's get married in october right like what's the big deal right three months it's like it's like october are you fucking crazy <laughs> you know that's so i'm learning and but i'm gonna do a few things i'm gonna do a custom suit and oh nice i'm gonna get the cls logo emblazoned on it somewhere <laughs> that's the, the moon fucking awesome logo emblazoned on it that's so good and uh maybe on the like in the lapel or on the arm oh, i don't know dude, something like Chappelle would do with his c or something like that touch i love it so i'm gonna do that it'll be fun so yeah we're looking forward to that but we have to uh so to, to answer some of your inquiries we're gonna do it in richmond and we're actually looking at places next week it's going to oh, be nice. nice they're gonna be at, it's gonna be at a nice like we were looking at Originally, we were looking at the uh, the gardens, the the botanical gardens in Richmond. Oh, it's beautiful there. But we don't want to go outside. We think that's a mistake. Okay. So we're looking at fall 2023 to avoid the ridiculous heat. It's fall 95 wedding. degrees nice. in here right now. Very right? nice. So October, she was concerned about my birthday being in October. And I'm like, I don't care. In fact, let's get married on my birthday so we can just knock these both out at the same time. <laughs> Double duty. But I, I was telling her, you know, dad, mom and dad got married October 1st. Dad's birthday is October 2nd. So I'm like, right. it's unprecedented and I don't care. And I'm very similar to dad. It's like, whatever, dude, you can forget about my birthday. Yeah, I don't care about big. any of that. It's one year. And yeah, we're just going to have a small, maybe 50, maybe 60 max. Really? But we are going to be at a really nice place. I think we're looking at some a place that Thomas Jefferson actually owned. Oh, which is shit. Pretty cool. Yeah. Like an old colonial. Oh, place. that's so calm, too. I love that. And then we want to have like craft cocktails and she had a really great idea and she was saying it in joke i wonder what you think of this she was saying this in jest sorry we're taking forever to get to the topic but she was saying this in jest but i but i was straight up like when she said it i was like that is a fucking awesome idea let me hear and she was like what if we did breakfast oh and i was like dude that is such an awesome idea like to have pancakes and french toast and an omelet station and and all this crazy shit like something you've never seen before no at a wedding like that why not I was like, I'm like, are you serious? Because I think that's a really good idea. And she's like, well, not really. And I'm so in Our my family my mind, would love that. Dude, I feel in the like. back of my mind, I'm like, that sounds actually hysterical. Like everyone would always remember that. You will have never done that at a wedding before or since. And, and delicious. And delicious. Yeah. Delicious. And we'll have, so I don't know. We'll play. We have we have it. We have it. Uh, we have time, but I'm everyone's excited. invited. What I'm worried. What I'm wondering, Dave, you know, yeah. Lil is 15, right? So she'll be. Yep. She'll, she'll be, be 16. Seven, she'll be 17 in the fall of 2023, won't she? 16. No, because she won't be 16 until March. That's right. That's right. Okay, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was thinking with, with her and with Declan, plus ones? I mean, yeah, is it possible? That's a possibility, yes. 
Yeah. 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 yeah probably. Well, at that age, I don't know. It's tough. I mean, it's tough. I mean, I'm just throwing the idea out there. I didn't have a plus one at your wedding, but one of your groomsmen's dates certainly wanted to be my plus one. <laughs> and I was all about it. Oh, I remember her. I, remember <laughs> I did too. She's awesome. Well. I still, I still. She's a great, she was a great kid. I say kid. Yeah. But yeah, she was great. She was, she was super fun. cool. Oh, I can't believe that was 20 years ago. I remember that. I remember God. your wedding so well. Does not feel like 20 years ago, which I think bodes well. I remember being in the pool before. Remember being in the pool in the wedding? Yes. In the, in the, before the wedding with all of your groomsmen. I think Brian was like smoking weed. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, my memory's slipping, but that day, for some reason, every detail, every part of the day, yeah, it's like emblazoned in my memory. It really is. doesn't yeah. feel like 20 years ago. It really doesn't. No. Feels, no it's it crazy. It really doesn't. I'm just, oh God, getting old. Yeah, long ass time ago. All right, mm-hmm. let's get into the topic. All right, sorry about friend. that. Let's do people it. People say they like these diet. I think as long as I don't get into politics, people don't mind. Okay. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you. You watch them do it the right way, and you go, "Thank God I didn't try to do that myself." I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, as I said, the topic is No Country for Old Men, the film from 2007, Coen Brothers film. This was a topic that was voted on on Patreon. Remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. Part of your perks over there, early access to all the shows, but also submit your topic ideas and then vote on other topic ideas. We have an election every month. So one out of every four or five episodes that we do is fan voted. And this one won. So as I said at the top, not being familiar at all with it, went and read it. Got that out of the way. Watched the movie yesterday. It was on Amazon Prime. I rented it for like three bucks. Okay. This I didn't know this, Dagan. And I'm sure you did. You've seen this movie. You're much more familiar with it. I didn't know that this was an Academy Award winning movie. I had Mm. no idea that this movie was so well regarded. And I have to say, I liked it a lot, but I don't think I like it that much. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. But 
I don't think it I, I was surprised by that. And I wonder, God, it's so strange because having read it, it almost makes me wonder how I would have felt about it if I didn't read it. I don't know if I was distracted by that or if it added to it. But I do know that it wasn't a net neutral. It definitely affected me in some way. And one of the things I kept reflecting on, and I don't know if you agree, is I was just like, this is exactly the way I saw it. This is exact, especially the scene when Moss is sneaking up or like he sees the trucks in the distance on the Vista. He's hunting. Like I saw it all like that. All the trucks all parked facing wow. each other. I saw it like that in my head for some reason. And the motel rooms I saw exactly the way they were. So they did a really nice job. Like we were simpatico with that. But then there were other things that distracted me. There are things that happen in the book that do not happen in the movie. And there are things that happen in the movie that do not happen in the book, including really important things like her refusing to call the coin at the end. That yes. doesn't happen in the book. No, nope. She calls the coin in the book. And so there are meaningful changes that I, I wonder about. And there are some pacing issues that make me wish that they came up with this idea to, to kind of option this 10 years later, because I think it would have been like a really good five episode miniseries. Mm. I feel like it moves fast. And I feel like part of what makes the book operate so well, in my opinion, is the even though it's short and brisk, you feel you almost can feel every moment. It, it, does, it spends a lot of time by chapter with each person in, in location. And what he does is he changes locations quickly and changes things because of how he writes. So like you said, he doesn't use quotations. He doesn't use apostrophes in a lot of different ways. Possessive apostrophe. There's a lot of weird shit he doesn't do. And I don't really understand quite how he got away with that, by the way. I was talking to Mike about that. I'm like, I don't know why Cormac McCarthy is not is allowed to not use English grammar rules, but he's not. He doesn't have to. So there were some Style, things that were missing. Baby. So. So it's funny because I always want to have that grounding element of having as much information as I can typically. Yet here, all I know, I, don't, I can't identify if it made it better or worse. All I know is that I probably would have looked at it much differently had I not read it. So tell me about your experience with this, um, this film and the book, because I, I imagine with the film coming out in 2007 and the book in 2005 that they optioned this before it was out and got going on the movie pretty quickly. So they saw something in it. They must have. Yeah, so true. So it's. So talk to me about this, Dave. I don't think we've done a Coen Brothers movie yet either. We did Big Lebowski. Oh, Big Lebowski. Of That's course. the yeah, only we one I think that we've done so far. And we'll do more. I'm sure we'll get to Fargo eventually, certainly, and others. Definitely. It's, Amazon's recommending me that now. That Oh, I, uh, they are? Yeah, now your this, cue's yeah. going to be all Coen yeah. Brothers-esque. Um, you know, I, I first of all, I have to say, I know this movie every which way. <laughs> 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 I've sat with it. I've seen this movie multiple times. And I had a slightly different trajectory than you, Kyle, because I saw the movie before I read the book. And since I've reread the book, I've listened to the audiobook, which is actually pretty excellent. And I've seen the movie again multiple times. I watched it twice, I think, maybe even more than twice, just for our conversation. And I'll start by saying, as the knockback faithful surely know already, we worship at the altar of Cormac McCarthy anyway. Right. But I do think this film is a masterpiece and I think it's even better than the book. Now, I kind of feel for you because I think this is a film you really have to sit with. I think this is a film you have to see multiple times. I think you have to kind of let it wash over you, ruminate, gestate, let it just kind of let it sort of seep into your pores a little bit and rewatch it. It's a movie that. I think a lot of people identify it as one of the best movies ever. A lot of people identify it as the best movies of the last 20 years or so. And 
uh, one of the Coen brothers best. And, the, you know, these are among the greatest directors who ever lived, right? I think writing, dialogue, casting, acting, directing, of course, Roger Deakins, cinematography, the level of detail, which equals, I think, a, a high level of rewatchability. And it's a strange beast because for as bleak and grim of a story and a movie this is, I think it has an equal level of entertainment and just it's kind of a, a unique beast in that way. It's very entertaining. It's very compelling. I think it's a masterwork of suspension, suspense and, and tension. And I don't see over two hours that many chinks in the armor. And it's it's somewhat faithful to the book. It's not 100% faithful to the book. It's maybe 75% faithful to the book, I would say. But, you know, I think... I, it's amazing because every time I watch it and I'm pretty, I know it pretty intimately. I come away with just as many questions as questions that weren't previously satisfied, you know? And I think that's what really makes it so daunting and so compelling to go back and revisit because is it a horror film? Is it a work of tension? Is it drama? Is it a new play on a Western? What is it? Is it an amalgamation of all those things? I'm not sure, but there's so much to talk about with the story and it's really i realize like it's one of my favorites and it's funny when you compare it to something else we've talked about by the coen brothers like the big lebowski because i prefer a movie with that tone it has a wit it has a certain level of humor it's a has that dark comedy edge and even though there's some comedy and some levity in this oddly this is a much darker film obviously I usually prefer the Big Lebowski formula, but I'm all in for this movie, man. I just think, honestly, I think it's it would be hard to replicate something like this. And, you know, it's just, I, I couldn't wait to see what you think. And it also gives me a new level of appreciation for our audience in this being a fan-voted topic. I mean, I love you guys anyway, but now, you know, your stock just went up in my book, too, no pun, because this is... Right this is one I, I couldn't wait to talk about. Yeah, I was excited to get to this one, too. I want to be clear that I think that the movie is excellent. I agree with you because you said that there are like no noticeable chinks in the armor. I think that's a great way of putting it. Like, I don't really know very much what's wrong with it. I think I'm just surprised by how much people took to it because it is so. I don't know. I feel like it's so weird. I feel like what, what's especially weird about about the movie that's even more weird than the way it comes off in the book is the whole Carson Wells thing. Like, I feel like that is so confusing in the movie. I think that is one. I think it's confusing in the book. I'm totally not even sure what the hell that's all about. Like the whole thing where he's just hired by some company or something. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't really get it at all in the book and I don't really get it in the movie. So from that perspective, it seems like there are, there's like a little bit of fluff, but the one thing that I feel like needs to be kind of iterated about this movie is just the performances. The level of performance is, High, very, very, very high from that from that level of with the Academy Award reign that was bestowed upon this movie in 2007, 2008. You can totally feel that Josh Brolin is awesome. Tommy Lee Jones is awesome. Kelly McDonald is awesome. Woody Harrelson is awesome. Of course, Javier Javier Bardem. And I it's so weird because Micah, when we were watching this, she's like, oh, I know that guy, Javier Bardem. And I'm like, I don't know who the fuck that is. I've seen that face. <laughs> But I don't know who he is. And then I went and looked at his. I have it up here. His Wikipedia page. 
he's won an academy he won an academy award for this but is nominated yeah. two, three other times and has like a whole separate wiki page just for his filmography and i'm like how do i not know who this person is i do not know if I've ever seen a movie with this person in it, or at least that I don't remember seeing him in it. Yeah. Because in, in looking at his filmography, it's like I've definitely seen some of these movies, but I don't remember him in it, but he's exceptional. So everyone's performances are really great. And I guess it starts there. Let's talk about them. How do you uh, how do you feel about these actors? It's one of those things. And the book does a good job of this. This is, of course, the great advantage of the road as well. And in an even more extreme way is that he just focuses on so few characters that you do seem to get to know them very well, mm. even though it's just a slice of their life, a very brief slice of their life. You kind of get them. And I really dig that. So what do you think about the various performances in the film? Oh, dude, they're, they're so it's one of those things. It's really one of those films where and of course, I was fortunate because I saw the movie first. So by the time I got around to the book. I was already seeing the characters this way in their cinema, you know, their their cinema presentation. But I mean, let's start with Tommy Lee Jones, right? I mean, you think about him being this consummate actor. He pops up in things. He's always good. I think about him with The Fugitive previously, where he plays the cop pursuing Harrison Ford's character. Of course, you think about him in the Men in Black series. But I don't think I fell in love with Tommy Lee Jones until the opening monologue of this movie, you know, the opening three minutes where he's he's talking over the various vistas and landscape of this West Texas place. And, dude, he is just there's so much gravitas in his performance. I know Tommy Lee Jones is from West Texas. I know he's he's of that place. And it does feel very authentic. You buy him as this aging sheriff who's having trouble evolving with the times and just really takes exception to the way things have been going in this place and just longs for a past time where things were simpler, less dangerous, less deadly and all of the and all of this. But I mean, I think it really starts with him. I think he just lends so much gravity to the film. And um, I don't know for you and having read the book first, were you seeing it this way? Did you did you like him in the part and all of that? Yeah, I didn't know who was really playing anyone. So I, I hadn't I, I envisioned him just as an old an old man who is has this is torn see the one thing that the book does more than the movie and i hate keep mentioning the book because it's not not supposed to be about the book but it does a really good job of setting him up with his wife a lot more they talk a lot more about his his family life and his home life and you learn about you also learn about they don't talk about it at all in the movie about how he won an award basically like as a coward in world war ii and i think it was world war ii maybe it was korea but that way, I know. I think it was World War Two. Yeah, I think, I think he you're says right. he was in France or something like that. And there's so this is this whole thing chasing him and kind of painting his character that we don't ever learn about in the movie. So they they cut that out for a reason. I don't know that it it necessarily needed to be there for the film adaptation, but he's excellent. I totally agree. He's there are just such wonderful actors. I think Woody Harrelson is just another one of those guys. We really saw that again when we did True Detective, oh, and man. you just and it's like holy moly, man! I I really. <laughs> I didn't know it was like this with you, Woody. And and you see another movie like this. And yeah, these guys are excellent. They're and, so good. And I got to give a shout out. I said it earlier, but Kelly McDonald, who I know from a few different things because she was in Black Mirror and some other stuff, but she's really great, too. I, I find that that's exactly the way I pictured Carla Jean, just this this very 
this very naive young girl that's and you don't really get to learn very much about any of them, which is fun. Now, what do you think about the story itself? I'm curious what you think about this whole idea. And I, I know that the, what was appealing to this for to the story for a lot of people was this idea that it's really about just a vignette, as it were, of life on the border between the U.S. and Mexico and how prescient it is and how this mo- this book seems to be not predictive, but just it becomes more and more relevant as time goes on. And that's rare. And so that's kind of a, a cool Great thing. Point. Yeah. So I dig that. Um, but it's so funny because he finds, you know, the whole story revolves around Moss finding this money, but then going back to the scene of the crime, he could have gotten away with it, which is what is so annoying. Unless, of course, um, Shigura got near him with the the uh, the box, like the 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 electronic box that was tracking him, the tracker. But otherwise, he would have eventually figured it out. It's so frustrating because there are so many moments where it's like, how did you not look in the bag? How did you not look through the money? How did you? Why did you go back? They, they in the movie they illustrate a lot more about how he seems to go back to give water to the dude, which they don't make quite as clear in the book. It seems like yeah. he's going back for other reasons as well, but it's right. so frustrating. So how do you feel about the way it all opens in this way? It's all framed because the movie's not so much about him finding the money as much as it's about him going back to the scene of the crime. He just would have gotten away with it, and it's just it's so interesting. I, I love that because it's frustration from the word go. Absolutely, and you know this movie really centers around characters that are. Moral and and virtuous in many ways, but they all have a little bit of moral ambiguity, too, which I think is fascinating. And I think that starts with Llewellyn Moss. You know, he's our protagonist. So this whole story set in West Texas, 1980. So West Texas just coming out of the 70s based around a drug deal gone wrong in the desert. And a man, you know, a civilian stumbles upon this these drugs and this cash. And then all the characters the small cast of characters, albeit important characters, surrounding this whole situation. And it really is just a story, I think, at its core about change and dealing with the times and dealing with the era, dealing with something that happens in your life and how you're going to adapt to that change. And then the characters surrounding this situation and how the events play out for them. And with Llewellyn, he's an interesting guy, right? What do we know about him? He's a younger guy served a couple of tours in Vietnam. So he knows how to take care of himself in a crisis situation, in a combat situation. He's a lower blue collar guy who's a welder by trade. He's married to a young girl. They live in a West Texas trailer park and he stumbles upon this suitcase full of $2.4 million. And what do you do? He does what most of us would do. He takes the money. And then as Colin said, He takes the money. There is a transponder in there at first unknown to him. So a locator. But then he in this massacre that he stumbles upon in the desert with all these dead guys and machine guns and dead pit bulls and blown up pickup trucks. He stumbles upon one guy who's still alive in the cab of one of these pickup trucks. And the guy's a Mexican guy asking for water. And Llewellyn's trying to sleep that night with his, you know, his satchel of money stashed under his trailer. And it seems like he's, you know, his conscience is bothering him. And he goes and fills up a jug of water in the sink and goes to take it out to this guy, this dying man in the middle of the desert. 
And that's what kicks off this cat and mouse serial killer chase of this man who now Llewellyn's interesting because he's our hero. He's our protagonist. We are rooting for him. But at the core of this situation, he has done something wrong. He's taken money that doesn't belong to him. And then he has to pay for his actions. It seems like he's trying to satisfy his whatever his consciousness by taking water out to this guy in the desert, whatever he thinks that's going to do. But I love that because it feels like a very human reaction to dealing with his guilt, essentially, right? He's probably a decent man. He He's on the up and up. He's a blue collar worker. He abides by the law for the most part, but he's done this one thing and he feels bad about it. So what is he going to do? He's going to take this water out to the guy in the desert. And what we know of Llewellyn too, not only is he, he's not some simple bumpkin. He's a smart dude. You see the way he handles himself in the desert, the way he figures the situation out. He's just as smart as any police officer, you know, and of course he has that Vietnam background. We know he's a hunter. He's, he's hunting prong, pronghorns in the desert when he comes across this whole debacle, which is interesting too, because the one sort of the one mistake he makes besides not finding the transponder right away, is even showing up in the desert again, where now his pickup truck's there, they get the VIN number, you know, the, de- the, the Mexican cartel members come, they get the VIN off the pickup truck. Now they're on him. Now they got him. And if he didn't show back up, what would have happened? Not sure. Yeah, we're not sure, but I think it was unclear to me about what the strength of the transponder was in the book, but in the movie, it seems like it's not very strong. Like he is driving in a direction, I guess, but he doesn't really pick up anything until he gets pretty close to it. It almost felt like it had the, the range a little bit more than like a garage open garage door opener. Sure. Or something. <laughs> this is 1980. Right. So Decades it's not ago. pulsing out this crazy beam of energy, I don't think. So it's possible that he may have never discovered it. And as long as sugar never got um, and I can never really say his name because they, they do say in the book that it's pronounced like sugar. Yeah. Um, yeah. They do they say that specifically. They don't in the say, book. Yeah. They, and they don't say it in the in the um, they don't say it like that in the uh, in the movie, which I was surprised about. But that uh, he might have never if he as long as he didn't get into a specific proximity of the what was it? The desert air. Yes. Uh, you know, mobile home uh, encampment that he might not have ever picked it up. So it really is going back to the scene of the crime that. And I also love dig about you know, with Llewellyn's intent, it does seem like he wants, he feels bad about the guy, but does he feel like he needs to do this? Did the guy, is he afraid that someone saw him? Like, is he afraid that the guy's going to live? We don't really, because he's not the narrator of the story, which is cool. And it's an outside narrator. We don't know. We only know what they tell us. Right. Yeah. So it's, so it's cool because we are talking about how smart he is. And so he must know that he's going back and it's dangerous. Cause in my mind, it would be like beyond, getting your truck stolen like he does and them figuring out who he is because of the license plate and all the shit that that falls apart because of that. Don't you just think that eventually someone's going to come look for this shit? Like, why would you go back? Why would you? Why are you going back? Why are you yeah, going back? Right. And maybe it is that that just that guilt that he feels about not only the body, but about taking the money. Yeah, but it's, it's, guilt, it's so interesting it? to me that he just won't. He just does whatever. He, he makes the wrong move. He yeah. really does. Is he looking for answers? Is he looking for closure? Does he want to get caught? I mean, it's almost like it's one of those ambiguous things in the movie where 
we got to kind of read into it a little bit, but there's something in that that makes it feel very authentic, authentically human to me, where it's like he does, he might not even know, you know, he might just be reacting to one of the craziest things that could possibly happen to a human being and stumbling upon this money and this drug deal gone wrong and these this mass murder out in the desert, like something completely unexpected and just kind of the trauma almost of dealing with that and questioning yourself and having to answer to your wife and lie to your wife and wanting a better life. It's interesting. I mean, I think at the core of this, like, would you put yourself in Llewellyn's place? Would you have taken the money? Yeah, Walter Boley actually wrote into this. I was going to ask us that later, but uh, so thank you, Walter, for writing in. Yo. What would we have done, he asked. Sure. And it's like, yeah, I would have taken it. Definitely. But I think that, but I think it, you, I don't know, like, there's, there are different ways you could have handled this, especially in 1980. Sure. Now, of course, you don't have the view of the way things could have been where you're not getting away with that today. There's just too many different ways to track you. But in 1980, I'm not so, I'm not so sure. Maybe what you do, because he, it's important to note that that he Moss is out hunting like he's not doing anything wrong. He's just dicking around. Yep. And he stumbles upon this. So an option for him would have been to take the money and then report that he found this crazy shit in the, in the middle of the road, including all the drugs. He left all the drugs there. He's like, yeah, there's a fucking here's all the heroin. Right. <laughs> and so he could have like had the best of both worlds, which is what's even more frustrating because it, um, it is said by by uh by Tommy Lee Jones, he notes that there's no money here. And they, they have that awesome discourse with him and the, and the deputy. He's like, you know, you, so you, do you believe that there's no money? He's like, no, I, I don't ride do or whatever the hell kind of weird <laughs> shit he says. And so he doesn't quite believe that there was no money involved, but you could have still imagined where he could have called this in. But like, I, I was hunting. There's this crazy shit going on. Boop, the money is mine. No one's going to be the wiser. And you, the best of all worlds, I think. So that's that's maybe what I would have done. It's been sure. like, all right, I'm going to snipe the money. This is clearly from a drug deal. Ill-begotten. Right. Life-changing. I mean, $2.4 million is life-changing money now. In 1980, that's four times more money than it would be today. So, yeah. Well, what, what would you have done, Dick? do you think? Do you I think you thought taken about it? this. I thought about this at length. I think I'm such a warrior. And really a worry wart at my core that I think I would have taken it, but I think I know my dumbass. I would have been justifying it to myself that I'm taking the money from clearly from drug dealers, from a drug cartel, from bad guys. And that's how I would justify it. It's not like I took the lotto winnings from some sweet marm, some sweet grandma or some Wall Street broker some innocent wall street broker's house or a hollywood type or something like this is this is blood money and i'm i'm living in a trailer with my wife i'm on, honestly you know obviously of meager means i don't have much i'm a blue collar dude so let me take this but i, I know that's how i would justify it in my own head but I feel like there's something there beyond even knowing about the transponder which we don't even know about right away that there's a locator hidden in this satchel I think I feel like I would have transferred the money from that bag into my own whatever backpack, brown paper bag, whatever, just for some reason. And I would have taken I wouldn't have taken all of it. I'm not sure how much I would have taken, but I don't think I would have taken all of it, which leads me to believe that I might have been a little more clever 
in a go-around sort of way than Llewellyn, because I, I might have come across the transponder because he comes across that stack of singles mm. in this otherwise stacks hordes of $100 bills, which is very suspicious. So you see a stack of singles in there, which I love. That's one of those details in the movie where it's like, wow, yeah, they didn't want to cut hundreds of $100 bills, so they put singles in that, in that specific stack or whatever. So good. But I think that would be, I, I don't know that many people that honestly could say that they wouldn't take $2.4 million. I mean, that's... I mean, well, the reality is, is if this really happened to me, I'd probably cry and <sighs> call the cops, you know, but... All these but yeah, people. I'd like to think that, because it's what you said. I, if I find a wallet, I find something, it's different. You right. want to try to return that to people. These guys... I don't know. I mean, you don't want to be on the wrong side of them, but knowing what we know about them, they would have just killed us for seeing them anyway. So you might as well just just take the money. He he has that great um, sugar has that great quote later on when he's when he's like, well, did you see me? You know, like, <laughs> so are you going to kill me? Sir? Yeah, it's so it's so good with that whole weird thing. I want to talk about Josh Brolin just briefly. Nick. Gobbler wrote into us and said, movie is a brilliant masterpiece, and I remember reading the script before seeing the film. Perfect translation to film. I believe that Joel from The Last of Us was loosely based on Josh Brolin's character. Mm. This I would believe. It's funny if that's true, because, and I don't know that it is, but I, it, it would, I would believe it. And it's funny if it was true, because The Road is so clearly an inspiration for The Last of Us as well, that sure. at that point, it's Cormac McCarthy that is more an inspiration for uh, the, the Last of Us than anything else. Did you see the connection there between Joel and and uh, Josh Brolin's character? No, but I could certainly. That's a great. That's a great uh, pull. I th- I could certainly see that. There's definitely some things in there. I think there's definitely some points of comparison, and I could definitely. It's interesting with Llewellyn because again, he's you're trying to see. For me, I'm watching this movie with a moral compass, right? Everybody is. So you're trying to see which way it's going to work out for him. And again, you're pulling for this guy, but you just know, I love kind of taking this journey with this guy because you just know at the core of things, he's done something wrong, despite being our protagonist and our hero. And we know he's running from some really bad people. And we know just from his exchanges and the things he does and his interactions with his wife and others that he's not a bad guy. He's just sort of beholden to money just like every human being right especially think about 2.4 million dollars in 1980s terms but we just know there's a you know he's done something morally unjust at the center of things he's kind of brought it on himself and we're still rooting for him which i love as a clever sort of ride along that we're getting to take this journey with this guy this adventure even though if you're kind of betting on karma, we know he can't possibly win, you know? And I, you know, I'm a big karma guy. I'm a huge karma dude. So I think uh, it's such an interesting journey. And of course, we're not going to spoil the way it plays out yet. We'll get there. But talk about subverted expectations. I mean, this is a masterwork of that. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, no doubt. No doubt about it. Let's talk about the antagonist, Anton Sugar. Uh, Cody Gardner wrote into us on Patreon, says, hello, Moriarty bros. I think Javier Bardem's, and I think I'm saying his name right, I don't know if I am. Yeah. Sugar is one of the best movie villains of all time. Do you agree, and what do you think of the ending where he seemingly gets away? So let's talk about this character. What do you think about our friend Anton here? We meet him, as we do in the beginning of the book, in the beginning of the movie, strangling out a cop 
and he takes on and I, I wanted to make sure I wrote that in my notes. He takes on in, in the movie an almost Metal Gear solid boss type persona in my mind, especially with that air gun, that uh, captive bolt pistol, <laughs> which is a cool, really sick weapon, but it's very Metal Gear and it's just like this is his thing. And he just kind of has like this Terminator esque walking around doing his thing kind of vibe. But. Nonetheless, I'm curious what you think about this uh, Academy Award winning performance and how it translates in the film. Man, so chilling, so ambiguous. One of the great movie villains of all time. I think think about all the great movie villains, right? You got Darth Vader. You got who else? Who else is a classic? You know, you got the the Bond villains. You got Michael Myers. You got Freddy. You got Leatherface, Mm. Pinhead, whatever. So part sort of mystical supernatural serial killer and then part alien and part human that just kind of abides by these strange unique codes or whatever i love first of all javier bardem is is an interesting guy because he seems like such a warm human being he seems like such a kind spirit and he's got this really elusive filmography if you go on and look He's done all these things that you would know. Oh, he's popped up in this, this, this. Not just English language films, but in his native Spain, in Madrid, he does a lot of Spanish language films still to this day. And I think he has a home still in in Spain. So he's back and forth. I think the last thing I saw him in was, before this, was Vicky Cristina Barcelona, that Woody Allen movie, um, which is an interesting part too, and a much different part. He plays just a regular dude. And it's about relationships. But what an interesting character. Now, if you start from the novel, the character in the novel is interesting because Cormac McCarthy, even though we know his full name and we know that he's kind of this ruthless, notorious assassin and he's employed by the drug cartels and stuff. And he's in he's kind of employed in this shadowy underworld where the drug cartels are in line with big business and skyscrapers and corporations, right? Then in 1980. And like you said, it's kind of prescient because we could see this playing out to 2022. Nothing's changed. It's only gotten worse, right? But here's this character. And first of all, start with his physical appearance. He's got this crazy Dutch page boy haircut. And I always figure, and he's so scary and chilling and imposing and intimidating despite that look and i always thought that was such a baller move i always thought that was such a fuck you it's like even though this dude looks like this you're gonna be so horrified of this guy and i thought it was such an interesting choice it kind of evocative of the era but also even strange for the 70s coming into 1980 in west texas like a little you could understand everything being a little behind the times this is not New York. This is not California. This is not high fashion place. So you would think West Texas would be uh, in 1980 would be like five years behind the times. And we could see that in the decor and the cars and stuff like that. But I love that physical appearance and the fact that he's so scary despite that look. And just that you're trying to figure this guy out. And he has a very inhuman presence. He's calm he's calculated 
He doesn't, he has that Michael Myers thing of not rushing after his prey, almost like I know I got you so I could kind of take my time. I know I have the upper hand, whatever's going on. So I could kind of walk after you, even though you're running and panicking and that whole dynamic, which I think is really interesting and scary. And then at the center of that, you're just trying, you see his interactions with other people, the various drivers that he pulls over when he's pretending masquerading as a cop, when he has the exchange with the gas station proprietor and all this kind of stuff you're trying to figure out like this guy has some sort of code it doesn't even seem to be necessarily about the bounty about the money that he's obviously employed to go after and we know about that through his interactions and a little bit about what the carson wells character gives us because they are obviously as a bounty hunter and an assassin they operate obviously in the same shadowy underworld and they know of each other or they've been around each other before there's some sort of a familiarity there but i mean i think he's a great villain and i think he's a very vexing villain because you're really trying to figure out the whole time what's happening with this guy i almost think about him a little bit i don't i think this was accidental but he almost has a terminator-esque dynamic I think even, and I think, again, it was probably unintentional with Javier Bardem and his lack of English prowess. Like, he doesn't speak English that well, or at least he didn't 20 years ago when the film was, you know, made the better 15 years ago. So, and I think that makes him feel a little more alien, too. And he feels like this otherworldly supernatural presence. And I think, for me, after seeing this so many times... It almost seems to me like he's the angel of death. Like sometimes he'll, you know, like he kills the bird on the bridge and he lets the cat in the motel that's drinking out of the sorcerer lets the cat live. He lets the gas station attendant live. He lets the lady who's kind of getting his goat at the trailer park, the trailer park administrator, he lets her live. But he kills the various drivers that he pulls over, the chicken coop guy and the guy earlier in the film. So there's a weird sort of, I guess, a sense of chance blended and mashed up with a sense of chaos. And that just seems like the angel of death to me. You know, it's like sometimes the somebody's going to die at his hands. Sometimes they're not the co- the whole dynamic with the coin. So it's kind of chance mixed with chaos, mixed with this just, I don't know. He's an unstoppable force. I know, again, just in watching and reading about this film at length, like they did a whole thing where there's no music in this film, but they did a thing when Anton is on the move and he's closing in on his prey, they play train sounds behind him, almost as if to say this is a runaway, unstoppable locomotive. You can't negotiate. You can't cut a deal. This thing's coming. There's no way to stop it. This is a, tr- a speeding locomotive and it's going to do what it has to do. It's going to, there's no way to get the upper hand. And I think he feels like that. It's a, he's a real chilling villain. Villain. He do, you don't want to see this guy coming for you. And you just see somebody like Llewellyn, who's a guy who knows how to take care of himself. We could see he's smart. He's pragmatic himself. And He's just nowhere, he's completely out of Anton Chigurh's league, you know, a guy like Llewellyn Moss. So put yourself in that situation, in Llewellyn's spot. It's like there's nobody who's could get the upper hand on this guy. 
Yeah, it's uh, very well said. It's it's scary. I'm glad you brought up the haircut. Brendan Brewster wrote in about that. He said, good day. How do you both feel about this haircut? Personally, I think it's horrifying on multiple levels and does a fantastic job of conveying the character's psychopathic nature. I agree, Brendan. And I'm not sure, you know, when you read books and you everyone misses things when you read books because, you know, you glaze over sometimes you just don't catch something. I don't remember them ex- describing him like that. Because in my mind's eye, I didn't see. I don't know how I really saw him. He was kind of a little hazy for me, but yeah, I didn't see him looking like a psychopath like that, which is which is cool. However, he does act psychopathically. I, I love the scenes I, in the book. It was really interesting. It's not quite as explosive in the film where he blows up the pharmacy windows to like distract everyone so he can go steal everything. I love that scene. And I love the scene at the end where the kids find him and the guy's like oh yeah gee yeah i'll give you my shirt sir and all this and like get the money and any he, and he ends up living and we'll talk about that i i i dig that it does seem very terminator-esque very unstoppable force-esque you brought up the no music thing we should talk about that not now niall g wrote in and said i wanted Yo. to get both of your thoughts on the lack of any music or score in the film and how it creates tension and unpredict- unpredictability throughout the story i have to be honest i didn't realize it me either so i don't so i don't know if that's like, well, mission accomplished, then I don't know if that's the kind of thing, but I didn't notice until I until I was reading about it, but it worked. It's a very interesting point of view. What did you think about that? No score, no soundtrack. Yeah, there's first of all, there's somebody credited with the music in this movie. Who is it? It's Carter Burwell. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the only music you hear is in the background, very muffled in some of the eating establishments like the Mm. Greasy Spoons and the Diners. And there's a very somber track played over the latter part of the credits or the, you know, the closing 50 percent of the credits. But I like you, I didn't realize it. I think that really speaks volumes about the movie. You're on the edge of your seat. There's so much tension you're on this ride fraught with suspense and I think not even realizing, you know, start to finish. I probably saw this movie two or three times before I even realized that. And I, I don't think I ever realized that. I think I had to read about that there was no music. So again, a testament to just this story and the characters and the way we're man- manipulated, you know, like we're manipulated by this movie. It's a masterwork of that. The directing, the dialogue, the masterful dialogue, the cinematography, the writing, just like the characters seem to all be manipulated by money in the film, we're just manipulated by the goings on. And I think, I can't think of anything else. First of all, I can't think of another movie that doesn't have music. Second of all, I can't remember walking away from a, a movie experience and not realizing something so big. It's like, wait, that movie didn't have... It's like a fever dream. It's like you snap out of it. Like, wait, that movie didn't have music? Holy shit, are you serious? P.S. It's over two hours long. And it even without the music, even without those accoutrements, right? We feel like it's such a brisk ride because, again, we're so invested and, frankly, horrified. You know, not only do you have Llewellyn in danger, you have this impending serial killer coming for everybody. And he, he does come for everybody. And you have Carla Jean, who's a victim, who we'll talk about. And then you have, you're kind of rooting for this aging sheriff, too. And how how is it going to play out for this guy who's kind of this good guy, but ultimately this reluctant good guy who's afraid, you know? And just, again, pining for a, a different time and place. You really feel for this guy, and you really want to know how it's going to work out for, for the heroes. Sorry, I'm writing a note here, because I want to remember to ask you about something specifically. Sure. But... In the meantime, it's interesting. I want to delve deeper 
into this idea of the drug war. And I think the reason why maybe there was no music or why it worked out the way it has is because it's not supposed to be really a presentation of a story you care about, but rather just, again, a vignette of life on the border at that time and things that were happening. So, no, there's no music accompanying any of this or anything. This is just really, you know, quotes really happening. And this is the way it goes. This is how dark it is. This is how violent it is. This is how state it is. And so that might have <clears throat> that might have something to do with it. Great. And point. I wanted to point that out. Great point. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, Carla Jean, since you brought her up, what do you what do you think of this character? She is a young girl. I don't even know what is she in her early twenties? Did they say something like that? I think she's, she's supposed to be nineteen. Nineteen, yeah. so, and she's married to a much older man. Sure, and she lives in a trailer park. Her mom, her mom is back home in Odessa. She's got cancer. She seems very sweet and adoring, and obviously very naive. I love the dialogue between the two of them when he comes home that night. And, you know, how he says, like, he's like, I, I, yeah, what do you got in that bag? You know, Lou Allen, and it's like $2 million or you know, <laughs> a bunch of money or whatever he says, which I dig. I think that's pretty cool. So she was a she was a welcome performance and a very relevant performance because she's really the only woman in the entire movie. So, you know, other than and again, I think there was a second there's really a second prominent woman in the book, which is which is a well, not Wells. Why can't I think of his name? Ed Bells. Tom. Yeah, yeah, Ed Tom. Yeah. Belle's wife yes. is much more prominent in the book. She so really basically is. this leaves Carla Jean as the only female in the entire movie of any consequence. So what do you think about her character and the performance of Kelly McDonald? Yeah, that elusive Cormac McCarthy female character. Supposedly his new novels coming out, one of them centers around a female character, which is going to be really interesting to read Cormac McCarthy writing about women. Because I think I've read everything now. Or listen to the audiobook version. So, and they're very, you know, very spare female characters in his books, which that notorious Oprah interview with him, right? He, he What does he do? He gives almost no interviews. He was born in 33. So he's been writing since what, the 50s, 60s? And yeah, I think his first book, which I was looking in preparation, like I've never read his first book, but I think it, took, it came out in 65. That's The Orchard so, Keeper? Yeah, The Orchard good, Keeper. Good yeah. book. Good book. But it isn't, first of all, Kelly McDonald, you have the first thing you have to say at the center of the conversation with her is that she's Scottish. You know, she's of Scotland. And I think the first thing I ever saw her in, she had that thick Scottish accent because I think it was train spotting in the mid 90s, yeah, right? Yeah, train spotting. Yeah. And then, of course, I got to know her very well when she was in Boardwalk Empire. She plays Nucky Thompson's wife, Margaret, who I think is supposed to be an Irish character in that in her 45 episode turn in that series, which I loved Boardwalk Empire. But um, seeing her pop up with this West Texas draw, she's this young Texas girl and she's so convincing. I mean, what a performance. And even Tommy Lee Jones has gone on record saying like, I would have never known. And that's where I literally grew up. You know, I'm a 70 year old man. That's literally where I grew up my whole life. So that, that performance is so great. And you feel for this character because she really is the one true victim. When Llewellyn mm. takes the money, he's not trying to victimize her or put her in a precarious situation, but that's what he ends up doing. And she's the one who's really beholden to everybody else's actions. And you really feel for her because, because she's so sweet. She's taking care of her sick mom who has cancer. She's super young. She's still in her teens. 
which means they've been married for three years when we meet them. So she got married when she was 16 years old. She works at Walmart, although Llewellyn tells her she's she's retired. She's now right. retired from Walmart. And she's just a great, you know, she's a great character because we're rooting for Llewellyn, especially because of Carla Jean, because we want to see it work out for her. And, you know, it's so chilling when Anton catches up to her at the end of the film, which is more towards the center of the book, I think. Mm. Right. But at the end, almost to the end of the film where he catches up to her and we just it's so masterfully executed because, again, a perfect example of show don't tell when he walks out and checks his boots on the porch. But she's the one who maintains a little power over this unholy, you know, hellish serial serial killer because she refuses to call the coin flip. And makes him, makes Anton sort of do his, do what he's got to do of his own volition rather than go by this, these coins which have, which have some kind of odd power over him. Um, and he's, you know, some sort at the, these coins operate at the center of his philosophy, his code and the, the whatever rules he abides by. And she's the one character who bucks that. And she's this little little girl. So a powerful character, even though, unfortunately, she, she gets she gets cut like everybody else in this character's path. Yeah, I'm looking just flipping through the book. I can't find it where that scene happens. I'm pretty sure, as I said, I'm pretty sure she does call the coin in the book. I could be she wrong does. About that. Not only yeah. that, but right before it says he shoots her. She he's kind of explaining her, her his code to her and saying, I got here the same way the coin did. There's no, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of explains his philosophy in not so many words. And she agrees to it. And she, he says she says, I do understand. And he says, that's good. And then pulls the trigger. So it's very sad. So I like what they do in the movie where they kind of give her, even though she's murdered, they give her this little win over him at least you know i don't know how you would say it intellectually i guess yeah like a philosophical kind of principled wind yeah she's very stoic in the uh in that scene which is which is cool and i do like yeah the show not tell stuff about because the book is very violent i was very curious to see how that was portrayed in the movie and the movie's not very violent like there there's some scary shit like when he pulls the guy over and he's like yeah just stay still and then pops him right in his head it's very very like but it's not very gory like it's not so bad i think some of the the worst stuff they show in that respect is when he's like pulling the things out of his leg and stitching himself sure doing surgery on himself himself. yeah Yeah. it's funny because i've seen the coen brothers refer to this movie as violent and i'm just thinking like really like I found found far. I mean, look, think of like the wood chipper scene in Fargo. Yeah, Fargo. I was gonna say is way, right? way more violent. And, so it's I, and we're we're coming off a of Game of Thrones as well. Not to be sarcastic, but that is just so violent as oh, well. Man. I think maybe we're desensitized a little bit. But I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised, especially because I was watching with Micah, and she doesn't. She's a little squeamish with that stuff. Sure. I'm not. I don't. Me too. I don't want to see real life violence, like live leak violence. That's always hard for me to see. Yeah, you see like a beheading or something like that. It's like, oh God, like. But a beheading in a, in a TV show when I know it's not real, I'm like, oh, who gives a shit? Yeah, fiction, right? Yeah, whatever. So I don't know what that's about. Because you could t- the fucked up thing is you could tell me something real was fake. And as long as I really didn't know, I'd be like, oh, OK, that's very, very convincing. It's so fascinating it's to me. Everybody's mm-hmm. stance on that. You have you. Uh, you're you're much more 
you know, you're you you can abide by that kind of stuff. I really can. I'm very squeamish like Micah. Then we have people like PJ who sort of thrive on that, but he's like a such a kind soul in real life. Like it's so fascinating the little things that makes everybody tick and what they want to see and what they could deal with. You know, <laughs> I gotta I gotta get a little more stoic with that kind of stuff. That's okay. It is what it is. I mean, I totally understand people like I, I roll my eyes. at sometimes when people are scared of this, that or the other thing, but it's like, well, I'm scared of my own stuff. So who, it is what it is. Sure. Dig, am I crazy? Yes. Or is there an entire, yes. <laughs> or is there an entire section of the book, not in the film, which is when Moss picks up the random girl? Yes. That's, that's not in the movie. They kind of hint at it because he has that like interaction at the motel with the woman at the pool, which I don't know if that's actually in the book. But in the book, for people that didn't read it, he finds this like hitchhiker who's like 15 or 16 years old, this like kind of like slutty girl. I mean, they describe her a little bit like that after after she dies in the book as being, you know, that that um, Carla Jean's not going to be so happy that he died in her company because she is also killed with him. And so it's interesting because they're together for like several days, I think, and have this rapport going on, but it's not sexual. I don't know exactly what the hell was going on with that, but why do you think they cut that out of the film? Because that was, I noticed that that was missing. Yeah. I, in the book, I think, yeah. It, so what we're talking about is in the book, Llewellyn picks up a young teenage hitchhiker. She's 16 on his way. I believe in the book, he's on his way down to El Paso. He picks up this teenager and you're like, oh shit. Because it seems like a lot of the things in the book and in the movie, they're trying to paint Llewellyn as somebody who's not bad. They're trying to kind of bring you back into thinking that this is a virtuous human being, even though he stole this money. It seems like that's a lot of the tactic in the book and the film. And in the in the book, it's interesting because now you're thinking, all right, this guy is going to be unfaithful to his wife. Now that moral ambiguity or that gray area is starting to wash back in. And so he's with this girl. They're driving. He feeds her. They stop at either the diner. Then later on, they get nice clothes and they eat at a nicer establishment. And he puts her, they get to the hotel or the motel and he gets her a separate room. So he's just being like, a. it turns out he's just being like a nurturing father figure to this girl. It seems like. There's nothing sort of at play that's, you know, detrimental to her. He's not trying to move in on her. He's not trying to sleep with her. It turns out so. And she's surprised by that. I mean, that's what she's kind of because she thinks. Yeah, yeah, she thinks that's what he's going in for. Not only that, but it serves as exposition in the book because he tells her a lot of what's happening. And I think he presents it. And it seems so fantastic that she doesn't necessarily believe everything. But. It's either cathartic for him or it works as exposition because he tells her a lot of what's happening with him being on the lamb and him finding this money and he's being pursued by bad guys and all this other kind of stuff. And it turns out when the cartel catches up to him in the book, that is how it happens in the book, too. Right. She's killed. And in the movie, they just sort of gloss over it with the woman that's sitting poolside at the motel. And there's that brief flirtation. But he does say that he's married and he's waiting for his wife and he shows his wedding ring and all of that. And then it turns out that woman who is still trying to get him to have beers with her when the cartel catches up to Llewellyn, she is the one floating in the pool. She is killed. But they basically make that that female character and that scene much smaller in the film. They kind of, right. they kind of, I guess they excise it as 
unimportant, at least in their version of the story. But that is an interesting choice. And it is a big section of the book. I mean, this goes on, this kind of road trip with this teenage hitchhiker goes on at length for dozens and dozens of pages. So it is an interesting, and I don't even know, do we find out her name in the, we must find out her name. I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we do. I don't remember, but I don't remember that. Yeah. I I thought that was, I was weird. I was, cause I was interested in who was going to play her and like how that was all going to come off because I think visually that would have been really interesting to see him not being interested in this other girl at all. But you also wonder in the book if he is, if this is how it began with Carla Jean too. I mean, like we don't really know how they met and, and he picked her up at a younger age, obviously too. Yeah, so she like was 16 maybe, at Walmart, right? Right. So right. it's like, Oh so wow, like, is maybe, this playing out again? Right. Exactly. So I thought that that was interesting, like getting into old habits, but yeah, they don't play into that at all. I don't, I don't know why, because I, I don't think the movie feels long at two hours. I feel like you could have given us two hours, 20. I don't think I would have been disappointed. And I think we Definitely. could have gotten more of this. Definitely. So, and, and more of, well, um, I'm sorry, more of Ed Tom's wife as well. Sure. Which, again, is, is really relevant in the book because uh, he's kind of they don't really play it up in the movie. But in the book, it's it kind of is unless in my interpretation, it's represented as him longing for the normalcy that he realizes he can have as things outside of his control get crazier and crazier. He doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. And he and his touchstones are these, these interstitial dinners that he has with his wife where he gets called away. Sure. And then finally doesn't. Right. And they, they don't really, they don't really mess around with that so much. They, which is interesting because they do have like the horse thing in there where they're talking about renting the horse and how his wife does get paid for it and all that. that. That is in the book as well. Sure. But yeah, I thought that that was kind of a, an interesting thing. Let's talk about um, Llewellyn's death first. John Barnett wrote in and said, hey, Moriarty bros. One of the most shocking parts of the film was Llewellyn's death and how it seemed to come out of nowhere in the film. How did you all feel about this reveal? Personally, I feel it was one of the most impactful deaths I've seen in a movie as it says so much with so little. Thanks. It's surprising because you don't expect him to die. Although Cormac McCarthy isn't precious with his characters, very George Martin like. So, yeah. It's not a huge surprise that this happens, but it is it is surprising nonetheless, because you you assume if you're going to frame things on some protagonist, it's it's him. But it's not. It ends up being more about Ed Tom in the end. And that's kind of telegraphed through the entire story, both in the book and in the film, but more in the book because of all the interstitials, like the opening dialogue where they're showing all the vignettes of the different landscapes. That whole thing is in the book as an italicized, you know, one of the interstitial chapters. I wish they kept doing that. Because that kind of allows it to be framed in that way. But sure. nonetheless, uh, what, what did you think about Llewellyn dying? Is it expected? Is, is it sad? It, it, I don't I don't know that I feel much of anything about it because we don't really know anyone who cares about him except for Carla Jean. Mm. And the only person we know who cares about Carla Jean outside of Llewellyn is her mom and her mom doesn't like him. Yes. So it seems like in some way, the only somewhat objective view we get at the quality of the man indicates that he's not the best person, but maybe he was. I mean, he was a welder. He, he has some sort of life for himself. We just don't know enough about him. So it's sad to see someone die. But it's as you said, he kind of volunteered for this. He entered into this fracas himself. He didn't have to take the money. He didn't have to get involved. He didn't have to go back, which is, again, the entire crux of it all when they steal his truck. So talk to me about um, about his death. Yeah, I mean, this is that subversion, right? 
you're not expecting the hero of your story, even though he's a strange hero. He's not an anti-hero, but he's kind of a strange hero, kind of a strange protagonist to die just a little over halfway through the film. And he's not murdered at the hands of the guy going after him. He's not he's not murdered at the hands of the antagonist of the film and the guy that we're expecting to catch up with him. He's murdered by some random Mexican cartel guys that are you know, sort of embroiled in this jackpot that the mother-in-law inadvertently gives them the information of where he's going and catch up to him before Sheriff Bell could get there right before he gets there. I mean, minute, a minute before he gets there. So it is kind of shocking. And I love what you have to say about Llewellyn because we are, even though we're rooting for him, I think we're rooting for him because the baddies are so bad, not because the goodies are so good, if that makes sense. And, you know, it's just kind of we're kind of just manipulated into rooting for this guy. And we want to see it work out. I think, again, a big part is Carla Jean. But they do some really interesting things when Llewellyn gets out of the hospital. Right. And he gets his natty new clothes and he's in the he's in like the bus station and he's calling Carla Jean and telling her what to do. And he's leaning on his case of money. He's on the phone and he looks very kind of sure of himself and very satisfied with himself, his pose and his clothes. And he's all he's all duded up. Right. And he, a girl walks by, a random woman walks by and he checks her ass out while he's talking to Carla Jean. And so it gives you the it keeps spoon feeding you this moral ambiguity and kind of forces us to question ourselves as are we rooting for this guy or not? Like he's in the middle of a life and death situation trying to coach his wife through it. And, you know, she is completely innocent of all of this. And he's checking a woman's ass out when he's trying to explain something important. It's like those little things are such clever touches to put in there. And yeah, it, it really lets us know, too, I think, when Llewellyn dies because you're ping ponging around between Llewellyn, Anton and Sheriff Bell then when Llewellyn is murdered, it kind of leaves us, it's kind of our cue to say, okay, this is Sheriff Bell's story. Llewellyn was just kind of the last straw that broke the camel's back in this man's story and him sort of dealing with the way it's become in this place where he lives and works. And that's really what the Llewellyn murder is. It's that catalyst for Sheriff Bell throwing his hands up. You know, this already reluctant force sort of it, it. This is this is his moment to retire. This is what drove Sheriff Bell over the edge. And that's what Llewellyn's death is. Basically, that's that's what it does. That's what it means. Yeah, he uh, I think it's um, I think it's Ed Tom that says. It's the dismal tide or it's one of the it, like, that's a, such a <laughs> the two awesome, sheriffs, the two sheriffs. Yeah, it, it's like that's a really great quote and i wanted to make sure to uh to to jot that down as well what do you think about sugar saying to him and to carla jean and rightfully so based on this code that he could have saved her like he chose not to it's another reason to kind of root against him because it is it is true if you take anton at his word on his principles then when he says like there is no escape for you when when he's talking to him in the hospital he's like but if you give me the money, like Carla Jean will be fine. And that's when he's like, I'm going to make you a special project. Mine hangs up the phone. That's that's Carla Jean's death warrant. Right. 
I mean, yeah, do you think so? Absolutely, yeah. dude. I mean, that that's the interesting thing about this whole story. Nine guys out of ten that were operating opposite of Llewellyn, Llewellyn probably could have got the better of. Not this fucking guy. And Carson Wells comes into now. I know Llewellyn doesn't know Carson. And we'll talk about a little bit about the Carson. Character yeah, let's talk, we'll talk about Carson. Well, because I, I feel like it's so confusing. This whole bounty hunter thing is is interesting to me. It just indicates that there's a circular cat and mouse game. But yes. we don't really get to know more. It's like a cat and mouse, cat and mouse, cat and mouse game. But we don't know. No, what, no. Right. So it just suggests that I, I'm, I find it quite ambiguous in both versions of the story. It is. But it is fascinating to me because it really mean it always meant to me from very, very early on in watching this movie before I watched it half a dozen times that I love what it says in not so many words that there is this deep seated, deep rooted, shadowy underworld that operates below this drug trade, this border heroin trade between Mexico and the United States that we all know of. They're in that exact region in an era where it was getting thick. And there's these big businesses, corporations, billions of dollars, skyscrapers, executives that exist in this world. It's not just, you know, Mexicans and beat up pickup trucks with Uzis killing each other in the desert this is this is coca-cola you know what i mean this is general electric operating at the at the head of this thing and there's some sort of you know there's tiers there's a hierarchy all that kind of stuff and in this world you have a sat you have drug dealers you have drug creators you have bounty hunters you have assassins you probably have vying corporations at the head of this thing so in this world there are employed these, you know, Carson Wells is, we find out he's not only is he a Vietnam veteran, he's a retired colonel, army colonel. You know, he's an officer that, you know, so these are not only smart people, these are people with huge military backgrounds, successful people, but also people that know how to operate in this sort of, you know, this sort of world. And so the Anton Chigurh character comes into the hospital. Now, Llewellyn doesn't know him, but he's saying, look, I'm obviously not the guy who's going to kill you. And he warns him. He said, I know this guy and you're not there's no negotiating with him. He'll he'll he's going to kill you just for inconveniencing him. And when it comes down now, Llewellyn and Anton have their shootout in the street. They have their their face off. They're both seriously wounded. They come away from it. Right. They never meet face to face, but they have that phone call and Llewellyn Anton says to him, like, you have the choice to save your wife. If you give me the money now, you can't save yourself. I'm being honest with you. You're dead, but you could still save your wife. Now, put yourself in Llewellyn's situation. He doesn't want to. Nobody wants to die. Right. He he knows at this point what he's up against, because when he he bangs that receiver on the wall, he knows he knows this isn't going to be easy. He knows he's dealing with a force of nature here and a force of evil, I think. And a force of an inevitability, I would say, too. And I think what ends up happening is, you know, I just feel for Llewellyn in this moment because what do you do? Do you sacrifice yourself and the money just to say and can you and not only that B, can you take this sociopath psychopath at his word? How does he know he's not going to go kill Carla Jean? Right. But then the, to add insult to injury, when Anton does catch up to Carla Jean, 
he he tells her that it's not bad enough that he's going to be there to murder her. He he says Llewellyn had a chance to save you and he didn't. Now she says to him, it's not she's wise enough to know her husband. And she says, not like that. Not like you say. And it's not like that. It's not like he says. But in not so many words, in some sense, it is true. You know, he did have this the chance to at least save her. So that's interesting, right? Because do you have so much love for a person? Think about your most beloved, right? Do you put yourself and your money on the line and just take for granted that he won't, that that murderer will do what they say and just leave your loved one alone? That would be true love, right? Because, But it's still a risk. So you could understand Llewellyn's position. It's very comp. It's much like this film and this story at the core of it. There's so much simplicity, but so much complexity. You know, there's so much moral complexity and so many questions. Definitely. And with the, the Stephen Root character, who's a really good character actor. I like that guy. Oh, a lot. God, he's so but, good. But uh, him kind of popping up. And then I do love the scene when he's killed because the guy is standing there like we were making fun of him earlier. He also gets killed, but he's not surprised. The guy's not surprised that this happened. Like he's not he and he talks to Anton like he understands the business that he's referring to and all this. So there are a lot of people in on it. So, yeah, the suggestive nature of it is really cool, even though they don't get very far into it. And certainly don't explore it very deeply in the uh, in the film at all. No. Or in the book. No, no. But I think more so in the book. We get more of them in the book. I think yeah, than we do that's in true. The, yeah. In the uh, than anything else. But let me see here. Let's talk about this. Wade says, wrote in and said, hi, brother Colin and Uncle Dagan. I first Yo. watched this film back when it came out in 2007 at the age of 17. And it's become one of my favorites of all time. From the near-perfect direction and an excellent cinematography to the creepy villain and amazing writing, it deserves to be called one of the greats in film history. But there's one thing I've always wondered. What is your take on the ending? I feel mm. like the bad guy wins and the good guy loses. So does that bother you that at the very end, the it seems like the bad guy not only wins but gets away? I mean, he's mortally... No, not mortally, but he's very injured. Bones sticking out of his arm and all this kind of shit. But he seemingly gets away. And he's the worst actor of all of them. And he seems to pay the fewest consequences. And it scares a good cop off the beat. And, you know, he says something like at some point, like, I'm, I feel overmatched or whatever. Sure. In that really interesting scene with his brother. Is it his brother and brother-in-law? It's his, his uncle brother. or his cousin. Oh, it's his uncle. But I've okay. heard both. Okay. And if you if you look at the conversation in the book oh, and, uncle, the, yeah. and, the, and the movie, it's kind of ambiguous. Their ages. But it's one of the, it's one of the two. Uncle Alice or cousin Alice. LSM. So what do you think about that, about how it all, I mean, do you feel like it's a worse off story for not having a good feel good ending or is the feel good ending that Ed Tom kind of gets out? Is that the feel good ending? Knowing, yeah. knowing with forethought that not forethought, but foresight that we, we, we or hindsight rather reading and watching and all this now that the drug war just gets worse and worse. So he kind of gets out with his head, which is good. Sure. And he says he doesn't want to push his chips forward. And he says he doesn't want to go out, right out and meet people that he does, doesn't understand their code. And he talks about the kid that he brought to the that he brought to the electric chair in Huntsville and how they were just unapologetic murderers and on the on death row said they would do it again. And just kind of this world that is so, so far above his head that he just has no way of reckoning with it. And. I, you know, I love that. Now, the ending with, with Anton and the car accident, which happens much earlier in the book, not at the end of the film, 
like it does in the movie. It's interesting because in that moment, think about it. You're like the entire time, all the characters in the film, except for Anton, seem beholden to the forces of nature, life, fate, chance, whatever it is. Why not this guy? And then all of a sudden, this guy kills the the character you're probably rooting for the most, the victim. And he's riding into the sunset. And all of a sudden, he's going through a green light and he's T-boned horribly by a speeding station wagon. And you're like, in that moment, you're like, oh, shit. Okay, he is, he's beholden to the same rules as everybody else. And then you realize he just has a compound fracture of his arm. He's a little beat up, but he's going to survive. Pays off a kid. Again, everybody's subject to money everybody's beholden to the almighty dollar and he does stroll into the sunset and you hear the cops coming but you know this guy's gonna get away and you're like holy shit this guy is above it all and again subversion and and storytelling it's not the hero the one that wears white doesn't always win and the one that wears black doesn't always lose it's not like that you know what i mean this isn't a a, an old western this isn't John Ford and, you know, this isn't the good, the bad and the ugly. This is different. And this is the new Western. This is this is what Bell's talking about. This is how the world's going and the things that he's having trouble dealing with. The ending with Sheriff Bell is interesting because, you know, through the whole story, you see him grappling with this, pining for the past, telling stories about how the old timers didn't even wear guns on their belts and just longing for a, a, a world that's long since gone, long since disappeared. And he has this whole philosophy of, I don't even, the things are getting so crazy. The world seems so dark and evil that there's no way of wrapping your head around it. There's just no way to understand it. And you see him, not only does he say he's reluctant and he's always looking worried and, and exhausted and just like, like a punching bag, right? Every time his deputy comes in and is like, the DEA and the Rangers are going down to the scene. Do you want to go? He doesn't He doesn't want to go. He says, he tells the woman at the police station to call his wife because she'll talk him into coming home instead of going to El Paso. All this kind of stuff. We see how reluctant he is. He We see how this job has beat this man into the ground. And he really doesn't want, not only does he not understand it, he doesn't want to do it anymore. Right. And I think his retirement right before the end of the film, he's having the the conversation with Loretta at the breakfast table. And he's saying how he's going to do, he's adjusting with retirement and with the idea of not working anymore. So we see him go into retirement. I think it's good for the larger West Texas community because this guy is no longer capable of serving. You know, he, he, he can't understand what he's dealing with. So how is he going to fight it if he can't even understand it? But it's a bleak ending for me because I think the toll that this job has taken on this man is permanent. He talks about a dream that he had of his dad, two dreams that he had of his dad, who was also a Texas lawman, deceased, but how he met him in a dream and he was going on ahead to make a fire like the old timers did in in the snowy mountain pass and he basically told me when I got there, in other words, when I died, he'd be waiting for me. And his last line is, then I woke up. So basically being resigned to even the idea of a heaven or a mm. paradise or an afterlife that this man has seen such 
grim shit. And he's seen basically his world go to hell in a handbasket to such a degree that to me, what this ending says is he doesn't even belong. He doesn't even believe that there's going to be an end to that or there's going to be a rest from that, which is fucking dark, man. That's some dark shit. But I love the balls on that to, to end the movie like that, where it's like. Yeah, I, he won. He he survived. He said he didn't want to push his chips forward. Nobody wants to die, man. Nobody wants to be six feet under the ground. But it's not really... He lived, but is it really a victory? You know? So that's what it makes you... Yeah, he's going to have retirement with his wife, and hopefully they live for many years and their, their twilight years and enjoy their old age. But is he going to? He's a haunt, He's haunted, you know, and I think that's what the ending says, that he just has that outlook, that really negative outlook. And I think that's what the job planted in him. I think that's the seed that that took root. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think that there's a, a the silver lining is. For me, is the warmth that he feels from Loretta that he doesn't mm. get anywhere else, like the, the yearning for the normalcy that she brings. And I love how she's portrayed in both stories, in both iterations as being kind of a no nonsense but understanding kind and kind of mild-mannered woman that contrasts with the the craziness outside you know and and i dig that i have one final question i want to explore from caspa who wrote into us and said greetings super moriarty bros yo no Country for Old Men is such a memorable movie in my eyes because of how impactful a vast majority of the scenes are in the film and the feeling that they instill into the viewer. My question for you guys is what scene was most memorable for you personally? Mm. For me, it has to be the Texaco scene. How an innocent and defenseless gas station proprietor can instantly put his life in danger by simply having an inquiry about the weather always makes me feel a sense of dread and anxiety because we, the viewer, know who Anton is and have seen him for what he is capable of up to this point. I find this to be, frankly, one of the most stressful scenes in the film. For the whole terrifying conversation between the two, the ultimately end with Sugar deciding the fate of the proprietor on the coin flip, I feel is what makes it arguably one of, or if not just the best scene in the movie period. Thank you for writing in, Caspa. There are multiple scenes that are memorable. That is an amazing scene. Again, in both the film and the book. And I like that you brought up the woman that won't give him any trouble, that won't give him any information from the from the desert air or whatever, because that's funny in the book, too. And that, that does portray funny in the like a, a moment of levity in, a, in an otherwise really dark film. But what I wanted to say was that what I dug were any film or any part of the film where you see people that don't the type of people that I, and I put in my notes, don't ask questions. I'm fascinated by these kinds of people. We only see them in brief moments in the in the movie, but or, but it's or in either iteration of the story, really. But it's like when he goes in, he's clearly fucked up for some reason when he goes and buys clothes. Right. But they kind of don't ask any questions. They're willing to. I love shit like that. Like just the kind of the wink and the nod. The motel gives him a hundred dollar bill. And so I'm not asking you to do anything illegal, but just call me if anyone checks in. And it's just it's just these kind of normal but very criminal interactions that or sometimes criminal interactions that I think are really fascinating that are the the heartbeat of the film and the heartbeat of the book. Mm. So what's st- what sticks out to you in that regard? You know, what? I, the gas station scene, you have to send that one up because <laughs> there's so many questions there with the gas station attendant. If this gas station attendant didn't not necessarily engage with Anton in conversation, but if he didn't say something that could come across as nosy or sort of um, 
Yeah, I guess nosy is the way to put it with saying like, you know, I noticed you're, you know, what kind of weather you having up in Dallas. I noticed you were from Dallas type of thing, which for Anton, his anonymity is important, right? He's a hitman. So he's thinking like this guy's getting in, you know, this guy's too big for his britches. He's getting in and over his head here. And he's, he takes it as a, he seems to take it that neighborly conversation as a personal affront. If the gas station attendant didn't enter into the conversation with anything or in that way, would that exchange have happened? I'm not sure, but it does evoke that confrontation with the proprietor or the um, administration lady at the Desert Air trailer park complex because you think that woman is going to get it because she gives him guff like no other character and he walks away. Again, it's that randomness, that chance chaotic nature of that death it's like and just the fear that the gas station attendant gas station owner has in knowing like he's dealing with a crazy person like when that switch goes off and he reacts that way to just a a passing line of conversation and he reacts with such anger and hostility and he knows he's in a bad situation just that tension of of watching it the first time and knowing how is this going to pan out and that amazing thing with the candy wrapper sort of quaking or unfurling on the counter. It's just like one of those things. Like, how do you even think of that? I mean, it's just like, it's just poetry. I mean, that's, that's just writing. That's just quality. So that I would, I would definitely send that up as well. And the way, the comedic way that scene ends too. And the, the relief that we feel as an audience, the relief is the relief of the gas station owner, right? We feel his relief. And then Anton saying, don't put that coin in your pocket. You know, it's, and then it's saying, you know, it, you know, don't treat it like just a coin, you know, which it is. <laughs> it's like that chaotic nature of that whole thing. It's like, what is, what did it even mean except to just get our hearts in our throats? I would send that up. Another scene you, you talked about earlier, Kyle, which is a haunting scene is when Llewellyn goes back to the scene of the drug deal gone awry and he's pursued by the men in the pickup truck. And then jumps in the river and then has to swim away from the dog and then load the wet gun and shoot the... D- I mean, that's a a masterwork of te- action and tension. And I think Josh Brolin did that with a broken shoulder, a broken collarbone, which is crazy to think about in real life. Yeah, that is such a painful... So crazy. Painful injury. I, and you know what? I The other one I would really send up as a scene, as a memorable scene, besides the ending, which I just love. I love the opening monologue and I love the closing Sheriff Bell monologue too. I think the other scene that comes back to me is when we meet Carson Wells, because it shows like Llewellyn, the exchange he's having with this businessman. And we, we know automatically Carson's either a hitman or a bounty hunter or whatever. And he's saying like, he's saying he's being clever and very flippant and aloof, but he's also saying like, I counted the, floors from the street like there's one missing so we know how crafty and pragmatic and smart this guy is and i think they set him up to be a very important character which is only compounded by the fact of later on showing up in llewellyn's hospital room it's like oh this guy's gonna be the white hat that jumps in to save the day and it turns out even a guy of this magnitude of intelligence and prowess is no match for Anton. So I love, you know, that the way that these characters exist only to kind of play up how much we should fear another character. Just good story. It's just, it's just wonderful storytelling. 
Definitely. And there was one more scene I wanted to call up, but I can't remember what it was for some reason. Let me think real quick. Oh, you know which, which scene I have to talk about? And it's a very, again, a little ambiguity here, and I've heard many takes on it. It's interesting that this is still a thing that people are trying to figure out, but when Sheriff Bell shows up in El Paso at the murder scene of Llewellyn, right? That's El Paso, the El Paso Motel. And it's nighttime now, and before he goes back, rides out for home, the crime scene is taped off, and there's two hotel rooms. There's room 114 and 112. And he's just not satisfied, right? He knows this is kind of his last stand against this unspeakable, elusive evil in Anton. And he unholsters his gun, and we know Anton's hiding in one of the rooms. We see him hiding behind the door in one of the rooms, and... It's a coin toss because Anton's in one of the rooms and he's not in one of the rooms. And which one is which one is Sheriff Bell going to choose? And he chooses the one that Anton's not in. So he gets the coin toss right. And otherwise, he could have been he could have went out to meet, meet his maker in that moment if he chose the wrong door. Now, I've seen a lot of confusion about this, that Anton was in the same room. But I think that's what this scene is saying, that there was two doors to choose from. And he had, so in other words, Sheriff Bell did have his coin toss moment as well. Mm. And he chose, he chose well, he chose survival. And because in that moment, Anton's standing there in the dark with his gun, his, his uh, silenced shotgun at the ready. And I think that's such a memorable scene. And I've heard Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, say that's one of his favorite scenes. And you could just see the way it's lit with the shadows Again, I think it's just just beautifully done. And that's, you know, that's what I'm left with at the end of this experience is that it's really a bleak movie. It even ends on a for me a, a pretty sour note. And there're very few movies that have this resonance or have this tone that resonate the same way where you want to rewatch it almost like Indiana Jones, you know, like Raiders, like a, a great adventure serial, like a good Star Wars movie. You want to, it's almost, it almost has that comfort movie resonance for me, even though it's not a comforting movie. It's a pretty hard movie to watch, but for some reason it just keeps you coming back for more. And I think that speaks to its artfulness, not its tone. And uh, again, like salut, like I give some, I give the audience a huge nod for voting for this one. Yeah, I agree. It's, it, it's very good. And I'm glad you brought the cinematography because in closing, I just want to, Give a shout out to that as well. There's something special about films filmed properly in the South, Southwest desert, arid, those really special looking colorful skies, the yellows, the reds, the pinks. Sure. Obviously the blues. They also really captured the the poverty of the area and and all the rest. And I love the shots of the truck, like when they, they do a lot of nice foreshadowing with a lot of the shots where they show the truck on uh, the silhouette of the truck. And then they look back and there's like another truck next to it and all that. So they kind of, they constantly like frame things in twos, which I think is is pretty neat. Good. I will say my one complaint, if I have one complaint about the, the framing is that they do a pretty good job of managing real locations and stuff like that. But I couldn't help but see like a real Domino's pizza sign, like a modern Domino's pizza sign in the background. Yeah, of a shot. Wendy's. Carl's Jr. Wendy's. Yeah, I'm oh, like, there these were modern Wendy's. ones, though. Yeah, modern. Like, because Wendy's and Carl's Jr. would have existed. I don't know if Domino's would have, but these were modern oh. signs. Like, and they just kind of 
bother me like the dominoes especially if you see the dominoes in the background because when like you could tell me like, that's like totally not that right. stands but, out that yeah, kind of it, stuff. it does because they do obviously a really nice job otherwise with the the cars and the trucks the money obviously itself indicates that it's old so yeah it's it's very well done otherwise I, i'm really glad people voted for it as well no country for old men you can watch the film the 2007 film or read the book 2005 or do both we appreciate you guys voting for it. Dig I would recommend both for sure. You know what Me the too. other thing is, Kyle? That Ellis, that uncle slash cousin Ellis scene, he reminds Tom. This is the other thing that's kind of like, does this, where does this play in? And how does, how does this whole thing play into the, the story and, and what Sheriff Ed Tom Bell is feeling? Because his, his cousin Ellis was a deputy in the same area and basically tells a story about, how this country has always been hard on people and tells a story of their respective uncle many decades earlier in 1909 who was killed on his porch by Indians, by Native Americans, and how he was unapologetically murdered in his own home and how this country has always been dangerous. It's always been hard. It's always been inhospitable and, you know, just sort of hard on people and the way that that doesn't like the Loretta character, it just doesn't seem to give the sheriff character any comfort. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't do anything to quell his uneasiness or his lack of, I guess, I guess really it doesn't, you know, his lack of being able to feel like he could perform in this world anymore, you know, at his job and, and live in this in this universe that's just so beyond him now, which I thought was so interesting. And the other key scene that I have to talk about that I mean, talk about tension is when that be, right before Anton and Llewellyn have their shootout at the hotel, Anton standing outside the door, and Llewellyn sitting there with the shotgun, and you know Anton's going to use that captive bolt stunner to shoot the lockout, mm. and you know it's going to happen. And it happens and it like seriously injures Llewellyn because earlier on when you see it happen you and it hits the wall and leaves the imprint, you're like, whoa, what if that actually hits somebody? Right. That would that's like the force of a cannonball. I love the shot, too, when it when it hits the wall and he and uh, Ed Tom's like looking at it and the, sh- the framing, it like follows him looking at the thing and then just going down and seeing and seeing the thing sitting there. It's very so well done. good. Very well done. Good shit. Yeah. Good shit, my friend. All right, Dave. Well, that's uh. That's no country for old men. Let's end our conversation here on Knockback like we do each and every week with a dad joke. I leave it to you. All right. We're going down into the, I I say down, but maybe it's up into the nursery school ranks with this one. But I think it's cute. Excellent. Kyle, where do fruits go on vacation? I don't know. (laughs) Paris. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty bad safe for you like, three-year-old that's, that's very good all right <laughs> my friend well i appreciate you i appreciate all of you out there for your love kindness and support of all things last stand media knockback etc support us on patreon um follow us on youtube and on free feeds if you'd like you can also buy merch at laststandmedia.store including t-shirts stickers and all the rest free shipping on all stickers domestically i think i don't know if it's nice. free shipping internationally i don't think it is but domestically for sure it's free shipping nice for uh, stickers so thank you for that We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty.
Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Steven Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Andrew Roman, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Nog, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Blake Nesbitt, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Renegade. Graham, Christian R, Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez Espinoza, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Howen Rui, Quentin Thedens, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parades, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Andreas Wessling, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Daniel Johnson, H. Tronch, Trey W, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Jordan Gale, Of Fortuna, John Zile, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Gavin Newlin, Alex Lapier, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Eric Harden, Matt Flowers, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Antti Kinnanen, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allum, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, D.B. Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Heber III, Miranda Grubb, Josh Yeager, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Spencer F., Anton K., Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience and Grizzled Veteran Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmort, Geo Corsi, Joey Gondoliker, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson-Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Carper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice.